Well, on Friday, many of us turned in to watch the live stream of the funeral of Billy Graham. So many tuned in, in fact, that the, uh, the live stream was overloaded and they had to come up with other additional live streams for others to watch. How fitting for the man who undoubtedly preached the gospel of Jesus to more people than anyone in human history. He came on the scene at the dawn of the TV era in God's providence. And so though he spoke to tens of thousands in person in his crusades, that was often broadcast to millions on TV all over the world. And his influence, as you probably know, wasn't just wide, but it was particular. A book's been written about Billy Graham and the presidents. He personally met with 13 of our nation's 45 presidents. 13 of the 45. No American has slept in the Lincoln bedroom more than Billy Graham. And Eisenhower, on his deathbed, called for Billy Graham. Now, later in life, he lamented the extent to which he got involved in politics and political issues. We'll allow him that opinion. But to the extent that he spent time with presidents and covered the gospel, we should thank God for that. We should thank God for that unique opportunity he had. Of course, he still had his critics. Harry Truman called him a counterfeit and no friend of mine. George Will... The columnist, on the very day of Graham's death, penned a a pretty nasty and petty critique of him. Normally, George Will is a good read and an enlightening read. Uh, However, for some reason, something about Graham or his message has rubbed George Will the wrong way. Opportunities and opposition, both for Billy Graham and... You could maybe say more so for the Apostle Paul. We've been studying the book of Acts together as a church. More than half of the book of Acts is devoted to the Apostle Paul. And more than a quarter of the book of Acts is devoted to his his final imprisonment and trials and legal defenses in the book of Acts. And in these pages there is great opposition, senseless opposition, relentless opposition... But there is also great opportunity. His trials put him before rulers and governors and kings and give him a unique platform for the gospel. Up close and in the moment at any given time, it may not look like this is a good opportunity for the gospel, for the Apostle Paul in these later chapters of Acts. It may seem like it's just the opposite, like it's on hold or it's stalled or it's going backwards even for a two-year period, for instance. But when we zoom out, we know it's, it's all of the Lord's planning. It's his orchestration. The risen Christ is reigning and orchestrating, and the gospel is going forth. It is spreading. It is going to the ends of the earth, and Jesus is still doing that today, in part because of what happened back then. The Lord promised Paul in Acts 23, 11, As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will in Rome. That's an important promise at this stage in the book of Acts. But you could go back further, even to Paul's conversion, when it was said about him in chapter 9. 
He will carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He will suffer much for my namesake. We could even go back to before Paul's Christian days. We could go back to the time of the earliest disciples in Matthew 10 when Jesus told them, They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Well, that's exactly what we find in Acts chapter 25. If you haven't turned there yet, would you turn to Acts 25 in your Bible? Remember, if you were with us, if you don't know, chapter 24 left off with Paul in prison over a two-year period. The indecisive governor, Felix, well, he wanted to do the Jews a favor, but he didn't want to decide either way on Paul, so he just let Paul sit there in prison. However, at the end of two years, Felix, the governor, was replaced by Portius Festus. And now we pick up in chapter 25, if you would, read along with me. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus 
who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with all the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing de de definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And we'll stop there for today. As you can tell, the story goes on, and we will pick up in chapter 26 in upcoming weeks. Chapter 25 is enough for us today. There are seven turns in the story that I think will help us think through it bit by bit. First, there's a fresh conspiracy, a fresh conspiracy in verses 1 through 5. It's a new conspiracy to see Paul killed, a new plot there have been other plots and other attempts on his life in the past. Chapter 21 recorded a Jewish mob rioting and beating Paul, intending to kill him. In chapter 22, after Paul's speech, that same mob began clamoring for his execution. In chapter 23, 40 men made a vow not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. And then in chapter 24, accusations were brought against Paul in Caesarea. Of course, that leads to Felix's indecision and Paul in prison for two years. Now, you might think after two years of Paul locked up, put away, and out of the way, that his opponents wouldn't be interested or, or that motivated anymore to, to go after him, to do something against him. You'd think that Paul would slip off their radar in a year, year and a half in. They have other things on their radar, other things to worry about. But oh no, I mean the, the hatred is still burning hot two years later. And so they hatch a plan, really it's their old plan, they're not very creative folks, they pretend to want to question Paul or try Paul and so they're going to send messengers uh, to the governor and ask that Paul be moved from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then on the way, they're going to ambush and assassinate Paul. you got to wonder, what had Paul done or what could Paul do that would deserve such, such a stir and, and such antagonism and hatred? And you could think of misguided religious zeal like Jesus talked about in John 16, he says the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. 
And they will do those things because they've not known the Father nor me. Well, that was Paul's own perspective at one time. Paul was once a persecutor of Christians before he was a preacher of Christ. He knows that well. But we also have to say that this sort of rabid, dogged, unrelenting hatred and and opposition and threat has a spiritual element to it. It's not just misguided religious thought. I mean, Paul's epistles and the book of Revelation tell us that this kind of murderous opposition or persecution has Satan standing behind it. This is satanic. But God is not threatened. God is not thwarted. In fact, God is the one who thwarts. Remember Psalm 2. The kings of the earth plot against the Lord and against his anointed, but he who sits in the heavens laughs, and he will have his way. And so it is here. Paul is providentially protected despite their scheming. Festus simply responds to the request by saying, "Uh, I'm in Jerusalem, but Paul is in Caesarea. I'm going to Caesarea in, in a week or so. And so then come up then, we'll have a trial, and you can bring your charges there. Now, I don't think he suspects a plot is happening, that an ambush might take place. I think he's just being expedient and thinking, eh, your plan sounds like a whole lot of more people moving. How about you just go with me where Paul already is later on? And so he was. He was protected. Paul was protected once again by the hidden hand of God's sovereignty through ordinary means and even pragmatics. Secondly, there are unsubstantiated charges here, verses 6 to 8. Back in Caesarea, a week later, as promised, the governor holds court, and no doubt the religious leaders bring their charges. No surprise. They bring many serious charges. They're not spelled out here. They were in chapter 23 or 24. There they said, he stirs up riots, he speaks against the law, and he tried to defile the temple. Well, no, no, no. By the way, it's only the first of those stirring up riots, disturbing the peace, that would have been of any concern to the Romans. The other two would have been considered intramural religious debates among Jewish Christians. But disturbing the peace... That was punishable by death. It was thought to be a crime against the emperor himself. That Pax Romano thing was a really big deal. Any peace messers, any people messing with the peace, are going to get severe, severe punishment. But no matter how serious it is, there's no proof. Verse 7, they couldn't prove it. There were no eyewitnesses. We know from reading chapter 21 and 22, it wasn't Paul starting a riot, it was others. And so Paul, verse 8, argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Thirdly, there's a naive compromise as Festus responds to Paul's defense. Now you might notice, verse 8 is Paul's defense. And then verse 9, Festus begins to speak. What what happened there? Well, either Paul gave a very brief defense because he doesn't need to say more. This one is sort of an innocent in totality kind of statement. I'm completely innocent. 
Or perhaps Luke is just abbreviating Paul's typical defense. And we've seen Paul do that before, so Luke doesn't need to elaborate. We know where Paul goes from here. He tends to go to the resurrection of Jesus, not just with his own innocence. Or it may be in this case that Paul simply got out a sentence worth of his defense before he was interrupted by the governor who just got this bright idea. Paul, how about we go to Jerusalem for your trial? It's nice in Jerusalem this time of year. I'll preside over the trial. I won't give you over to them completely. But, but in Jerusalem is where the charges began. And we know the real reason, Luke tells us here, verse 9, is that he was wishing to do the Jews a favor. It's a compromise. He won't simply hand over Paul to the Jews. He'll preside over the trial. But in Jerusalem, everyone knows there's a bit of home court advantage for the Jewish religious leaders. Remember in these days, there were high tensions between the Jews and the Roman rulers. You certainly see it in the gospel accounts around Jesus' trials. And we saw it last week with Felix. Remember, Felix, he, he was removed from his office because of his inability to maintain peace and to keep the Jews satisfied. Festus now is about 10 or 11 days into his new role as governor. And he sure doesn't want to upset the apple cart. In fact, he wants to establish credit with the Jews and so he's looking for an opportunity to do them a favor. But that's a naive compromise. Paul knows it. Paul knows that a trial in Jerusalem will be a death sentence if he even makes it there. We know that the plan A for the Jewish religious leaders is to ambush the prisoner before he ever gets to Jerusalem. And yet Paul has an ace up his sleeve. Fourth, in appeal to Caesar. Verses 10 through 12 show us in appeal to Caesar. Paul, as a Roman citizen, has the right to appeal to Caesar, and his case will be moved to Rome and put before the highest judge, Caesar himself. It'd be like if in the U.S., some citizens of the U.S. had a special card straight to the Supreme Court. And every now and then you could pull it out. If you're in really big trouble, you can skip local courts, you can skip state courts, you can skip appellate courts, and you can go straight to the Supreme Court. Paul has that card. He appeals to Caesar. Festus has to agree. To Caesar you shall go. Where is Caesar? Rome. We've been hearing about Rome in recent days. Jesus gave a little promise to Paul in a prison cell one night. As you have testified in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. We didn't know how he'd get to Rome. Would it be a sweet Mediterranean cruise? A cruise ship pops up and, you know, takes him there nice and easy all the way to Rome. Would an angel teleport him somehow to Rome? Would Paul simply be removed from, from shackles? and free, and allowed to get on his favorite donkey and start the long trek to Rome? Well, he's actually going to go 
in those cuffs and in those shackles. He will go to Rome as a prisoner because he appealed to Caesar, giving him a chance to speak to Caesar. Now, it's not recorded in the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends before that ever happens, but we sure suspect that it happened. It's, it's in the works as the book of Acts ends. We'll get to the end later on. Let's not think about that now. But it is clear as of this, this is how Paul gets to Rome. Before he leaves, there's still another meeting to be done. In comes a welcomed consultant. So fifth, a welcomed consultant. Verse 13 and following. Before Paul's journey to Rome, a visitor comes to town. It's King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. They're dropping by to visit the new governor. That's what dignitaries do. They, they show up someplace, they say hi, they wave, they kiss babies, they eat meals with other leaders, and they chit-chat along the way. Chit-chat, in this case, eventually got to Paul, this problem of Paul. Festus wants Agrippa's input on this tough case of Paul. And Agrippa's a good person to consult on this matter. Festus is uh, Greek and Gentile and not Jewish, and he doesn't really know Jewish-like things, but, but Agrippa is Jewish. He's 90% he's Jewish or something. And so he's aware of Jewish religion and customs. He's even the one in these days that appoints the high priest. So Festus tells Agrippa what happened with Paul. He tells him about the charges. He tells him about a concern for a fair trial with Paul. But he tells him about his confusion that the charges weren't terribly significant and seemed to be mostly about religious things. Nevertheless, Paul has appealed to Caesar, and so he's about to leave. He's going to go soon. Well, that's enough for Agrippa to want to hear from Paul himself. And that's what's going to come in chapter 26. Well, it, what our chapter says is, tomorrow you shall hear. Now, by the way, this Agrippa, this Herod Agrippa, it's hard to keep straight, isn't it? There are a lot of Herods in the Bible. There are a lot of emperors. There are a lot of Caesars. Well, this Herod is King Herod Agrippa II. His father was the Herod in Acts 12 who had James put to death. And then that Herod was filled with worms and died a sudden death. Now that Herod had a grandfather named Herod the Great. That was his title, Herod the Great. He's the one we find in the opening pages of the New Testament. He's the one that had uh, the, the, the male children, two years and younger, killed as he was trying to wipe out the newborn king, the Christ, Jesus. But back to King Herod Agrippa II, that one, great-grandchild of Herod the Great, he's here with his sister Bernice. Previously, she was married to her uncle. Ooh, I know. But it gets worse. When her uncle husband died, hopefully she didn't call him that, uncle husband, it was widely rumored that she... Uh, was in an incestuous relationship with her brother, Agrippa. They were always together. Multiple ancient historians note this rumor, and some even just 
stated as fact that they were incestuous. They were quite the pair, inseparable, kind of co-rulers, flamboyant. Now those details might help paint the picture of the ceremony the next day. Verse 23, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with many military tribunes and prominent men of the city. This was a big to-do. Maybe 5,000 soldiers, they estimate. Leaders from the community, movers and shakers, famous people, full regalia, lots of pomp. Now, we Americans don't know pomp. We, we don't even know circumstance, let alone pomp. <laughs> I was trying to think of, you know, something close to pomp. And, you know, maybe when, maybe when the sergeant-at-arms uh, announces the president before his State of the Union and says, Speaker of the House, the President of the United States. But that's it. He's not even wearing a funny hat, no robe, no cane, nothing. That's all he says. That's the liturgy. We ain't got no pomp. Now, the Brits got pomp, don't they? Uh, they know a little thing about that. And so do these people. That's the point. These people know pomp, and they do pomp quite well. And all this is for their own ego. They probably do it as often as they can. But in this context, it's to hear the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. So at the command of Festus, they brought in Paul. Picture it, in the midst of all that regalia, the Apostle Paul. Church history offers some possible insight into Paul's appearance. A man of little stature. His hair was scant. His legs were crooked. His knees were far apart. He had large eyes. His eyebrows met. His nose was somewhat long. Now in the next chapter, we'll see what Paul says when we get to it in a couple of weeks. But pause here to just take in the visual. To just, to just take in the juxtaposition of Agrippa and Bernice and even Festus in his purple robe, no doubt. There on their pedestals with all their pomp. And the Apostle Paul, the preacher, the prisoner, in his prison garb. Makes me wonder, what is greatness? How do you gauge greatness? How do you spot greatness? What are the markers of greatness? I think of Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith. Some saints of old, they were tortured. They refused to accept release. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. The world looked at these people, these prophets, these saints, and they hated them. They opposed them. These people were on the run. These people were cut in two. And the writer of Hebrews says, men of whom the world is not worthy. Now, 
in upcoming weeks, we'll come back to chapter 26 to see Paul's defense at this very moment. We're sort of in a holding pattern this week as we're right on the edge of Paul beginning to speak, but he's not going to speak this week. You can read it if you want on your own today. But what I want to do with the time we have left is to circle back to just a couple of lines that we've already covered that I think are quite telling. So number six, let's consider wrong questions that are asked. Wrong questions. In the midst of Festus explaining to Agrippa that difficult case of Paul, he said something almost in passing that no one should ever say in passing and it should never be thought of in passing. So verse 19, he explains to Agrippa, they, the Jewish leaders, had certain points of dispute with him, with Paul, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. But being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there. So get this, Festus heard about the death and resurrection of Jesus and passed it off as something trivial, an intramural, intramural religious debate. He simply shrugged and then asked Paul, so how about Jerusalem? That's the wrong question, Festus. You're missing the real investigation that you need to do. Of course, do your job to assess the situation of Paul's guilt or innocence. Yes, there are charges, and yes, you need to make a decision, but don't overlook this massive statement that Paul said, there is a guy who was dead, and now he's alive, and his name is Jesus. That's not a matter of religious dispute. That's not an intricacy buried down deep in the annals of Jewish Christian faith. It's not even a data point that should somehow be weighed on the scales of Roman legality like he's trying to do. He's trying to figure out where it fits in the legal analysis. Are you kidding? Jesus is the legal analysis. He's the judge. The death and resurrection of Jesus isn't trivial. It isn't something legal. It isn't in the midst of intramural religious debate. It is God's public announcement that Jesus is Savior and Lord of the world. In Acts 13, the resurrection of Christ means that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which they couldn't be freed. In Acts 17, Jesus there is the judge of the world who will judge righteously one day. And Paul says, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do we know that there'll be an end time judgment? Well, Jesus was raised from the dead. The judge is alive. The judge is coming back. But it's not just, it's not all bad news. It's potentially good news that the judge lives because he's also Savior. So Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Do you believe it? 
This is the greatest question. The most important question is, was Jesus raised from the dead? And do you believe it? And has it changed you forever? That's it. That's the question. Don't be like Festus who couldn't see more than one inch beyond his nose that day. He thought it was, he thought it was merely a legal situation. He thought it was merely a, an opportunity for him to try to save face or get some good advice or make a good decision. To have a good day 12 or day 13 in his new governorship. He, didn't miss, he missed the fact that Christ died for sins and was raised on the third day. And he lives forevermore, and he's the king, and he's the judge, and the savior. Every other issue, every other question pales in comparison with that one. I pray you think about it, at the very least. I pray you come to understand it. I pray you come to understand more than Festus did that day. Seventh, there's a single conclusion. That's the most we can get out of Festus thus far. The single decent conclusion Festus can draw at this point is verse 25, I found that he had done nothing deserving death. He knows Paul's innocent. But this also produces a conundrum. Verse 25, as Paul himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But, verse 26, I have nothing definite to write to the Lord, to uh, my Lord, to uh, the emperor about him. And so he's hoping in this ceremony, in this hearing, that after we hear from Paul, I hope I have something to write, because you can't send a prisoner to Caesar without any charges. You can imagine at first there might have been some relief when Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Felix may have said, Whew, that sounds great to me. Get out of here, man. I mean, that, you go be Caesar's problem. Let him decide whether you're innocent or guilty. Here, if I say you're guilty, I'm condemning an innocent man. If I say you're innocent and you can go free, there's probably going to be a riot. He must have been relieved to hear Paul say, I appeal to Caesar. But perhaps later that night, he began thinking about the paperwork he might have had to fill out to send Paul to Rome. It's that 603B form. That's what I imagine. He's remembering the 603B form and remembering that there's that section with a lot of white space and it says charges. And I got to write something in there. I can't say he didn't do anything or I couldn't find any guilt. Why do I still have him as a prisoner then? Why is he not free? And what do I write? He doesn't know what to write. He only knows that Paul had done nothing deserving of death. It's a pickle of his own making. If he hadn't asked Paul, how about we go to Jerusalem for the trial? Paul wouldn't have said, no, how about I appeal to Caesar? And so now he's got an innocent man bound for Caesar and no charges to write on the 603B. Of course, while that's a legitimate dilemma for Festus, and while it once again argues for Paul's innocence, even these things are not of ultimate concern. So again, I pray that you conclude much more than, yeah, the apostle Paul was legally innocent. Sadly, that's all Festus 
could conclude that day. Here's what you can conclude. We can use 2 Corinthians 5, where there Paul describes his message and his ministry, and hence what is most important for all of us. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not, not the judgment of Agrippa or Festus or Felix. The judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, and we plead with them to embrace it, to take it, to believe it, to call out to God for forgiveness. We are ambassadors for Christ, he says. God is making his appeal to the world through us as we speak it. And so we are imploring you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to bear sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God in him. Friend, if you don't know what that verse means or what that's talking about, and that's not your hope, I would love to talk with you today after the service. I'll be up front and available, and others will as well. They would love to talk to you about what that means and how it can be true for you. Christian, let's remember that this is our message to the world. This is our mission to the world. This is what is most important. Paul shows us that. Here on trial for the gospel, he shows us what is life-changing, what is direction-altering. Here's a man who used to be the chief persecutor of Christians, now the, 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 the chief preacher of Christ. You and I will never be the Apostle Paul. I'm sure none of us in this room will even be a Billy Graham someday. You may never get to give the gospel to someone famous or influential or someone who knows something about pomp. Thank God for those who get those opportunities. But again, we say, what opportunities has the Lord given you? Where is he giving you a platform? What's he putting before you? Don't assume that he's not at work. Don't assume that he's put pause on your, on your plan and on, on your progress and in your progress in the gospel and your progress with the gospel. Here's Paul, and it looks like this is a roadblock, and it is just an on-ramp. Here's the apostle Paul in prison for two years, and then a hearing before the governor and the king and thousands of fancy people. Here is the Apostle Paul about to clear his throat and speak on behalf of Christ. It's the Lord's doing. The Lord has fulfilled these promises. The Lord said you'll speak before governors and kings. The Lord said you'll testify in Jerusalem and on the way, eventually all the way, to Rome. The Lord is faithful. He's faithful not just to the Apostle Paul, not just faithful to give us the gospel, faithful to use us with the gospel. Let's pray for his help. Well, Father, there's so much we can learn from these pages in Acts. We can learn of your sure purposes to spread the gospel in this world 
in the face of great and fierce opposition. And so we Christians can learn to expect senseless and relentless opposition. In our context, it may not be imprisonment yet. Maybe it will. But may we be ready. May we be ready for loss of friendships. May we be ready for dirty looks. May we be ready for ridicule. Whatever you have for us, Lord, may we serve you with faithfulness. And may we see from the Apostle Paul that your spirit can put some real steel in the spine of your people for their witness. Help us, Lord, to behold you in your glory and goodness now in song. Help us to taste and see that you are good, that we might tell the world of your glory and grace and goodness in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.